up, Sassanacs? It's Chelsea back for another episode of the Sassanac Files. This week, we are discussing 705 Singapore. But before we get to that, I want to take a moment to remind you that you can find the Sassanac Files on all sorts of listening platforms, including iTunes, CastBox, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, and many more. Also, if you have not had a chance yet, make sure you head over to follow the Sassanac Files on both Facebook and Instagram to make sure you are up to date on all of the latest and greatest news concerning Outlander seasons 7 and 8, as well as Men and Kilts, Blood of My Blood, and anything Diana Gabaldon cooks up. And with all of that out of the way, let's get into my analysis of Season 7, Episode 5, Singapore. Overall, I felt that this episode was a decent episode. I wouldn't say that it rated towards the top of my most favorite to least favorite list at all. It was kind of just a lull episode. And that's kind of odd to say for something that so much happened in this episode. But a couple of the storylines I just wasn't super crazy about. And I think I'm going to shock everybody when I say those storylines were Jamie and Claire's. It's not that I don't think the actors did a good job. It's not that I don't think that they're well-written. I just think it really felt like been there, done that. We've seen Jamie not agreeing with his superiors and them not doing what he tells them to do over and over again, beginning right there in season two. And seeing it so much over the course of seven seasons really just starts to make it feel contrived a little bit. And I can say the exact same thing for Claire's storyline. Like you can only see the misogynistic, you don't know what you're talking about. You're a woman, I'm a man, so we'll do what I say. We can only see that so much from Claire's perspective before we're like, oh my God, don't we have another story to tell? Not to say that I don't think that some of the stuff in their storyline had some merit at all. We definitely saw the parallel between Claire and Brie, and I know that that is likely why they included the sexist stuff. They wanted to draw an invisible cord between Claire and Brie and really keep the similarities of the story there as they did in season three between Jamie and Claire. There's They're always looking for these through lines. But Jamie and Claire's story also gave us a really great opportunity to get some history because a lot of us were pulled into Outlander because of the historical element of this show. So they would be remiss to leave that element out of such a rich time in American history as the American Revolution. The thing that we really touch on from the American Revolution in this episode is Fort Ticonderoga and all the stuff surrounding that. Fort Ticonderoga exchanged hands quite a few times over the course of the American Revolution. This particular time is when the Americans already won it back from the British once, and now the British, Burgoyne's forces, with the advance guard headed up by Brigadier General Simon Fraser, are coming to take it back. Jamie, having seen it all basically at this point, knows that Sugarloaf Hill is an extreme vulnerability. I'm not quite sure if the Americans knew that it was a vulnerability. I mean, I'm sure somebody somewhere along the way said, you know what, if the British put cannon on top of that mountain, 
we're probably hosed. I'm sure somebody brought it up in their millions of risk assessments that they did, but I'll tell you one person that did see that vulnerability, and that was Simon Fraser. He was a very canny individual, had a very sound military mind, and he knew they weren't likely to get at Fort Ticonderoga by just standing outside the front gate and telling them to open it up. In times past, there were so few men guarding Ticonderoga and there were so few defenses that that was literally all they had to do was, you know, my force is bigger than your force, so get out. And that's not the case. The Americans have spent the majority of the past couple of years holding Ticonderoga reinforcing some of these defenses that they have. So it's not going to be as much of a walk in the park as it was a couple of years ago. So Simon Fraser knows that he has to think outside the box. He works on choking off their supply lines. And this is all like historical stuff that the show doesn't really cover. But this is kind of what's going on at the same time that Jamie and Claire's storyline is going on. So Fraser is choking off their supply lines. He's looking for a way in. And he sees that in Sugarloaf Hill, which will later be renamed Mount Defiance by the British once they take Fort Ticonderoga from the Americans. Basically, what they do is after some reconnaissance, the British clear a path. I think it's like 10 feet wide or something like that. They cut all the trees down. They cut this path up the side of the mountain and they haul all of their cannon up there. And Ticonderoga, it actually looks down onto the fort. So you can see inside the fort from the top of what is today Mount Defiance. So it was an ideal location to set up defenses for the British period. And then it was just kind of an added bonus that cannon could reach the fort from there. Once they did that, the Americans kind of knew the jig was up and they fled. Where the Outlander story kind of starts to evolve out of this is that Brigadier General Simon Fraser is Jamie's second cousin. So there's that thread there that's always ebbing and flowing over the course of this season of family and friends on both sides of the war and kind of where do your sympathies lie? Do you really know the full story vibes that you're getting from this season? There's a conversation that's had when Jamie is trying to convince General Fermoy that Sugarloaf Hill is a viable problem and that they need to put defenses up there. He says, trust me, if there are Highlanders among them, they're going to find a way to get up there. And Fermoy says, Highlanders or goats. And, you know, it's kind of like drawing a comparison to a Scottish Highlander being no better than a goat. And you can tell that Jamie is like super offended as he should be, by the way. And to have this guy as your superior, like your commanding officer, Jamie and Claire are both experiencing very similar things because Lieutenant Stacktoe is Claire's commanding officer at this point. And neither one of their COs respect their opinions on things, even though they probably have way more battle experience and triage experience than either one of these men that are overseeing them. I love how Claire, whenever Jamie comes and says, yeah, he's not really listening to what I have to say, he's not really concerned with the concerns of his subordinates. And Claire looks at him and says, well, he sounds like an ass, (laughs) which I thought was a very Claire comment and also kind of what we're all thinking at that point. But I like that Jamie replied to that comment. He kind of just took a breath and said, where a goat can go, a man can go. 
and where a man can go, he can drag a gun. So don't belittle my thoughts because this is going to come back to bite you in the ass. I can guarantee it. And for Moy, throughout this entire thing, maintains his pride. Like he does not want to step off of his high horse for one second to admit that somebody might have a viable point that he hasn't considered. And so it's really easy to not like these guys, especially when they're against Jamie and Claire. You're kind of just like, again, the storyline was tired, I felt like. Kind of overstayed its welcome or why did we have to bring it back at all? I get that people are wanting to see Jamie and Claire, wanting to see Jamie and Claire. And we had to have the Ticonderoga stuff. But this Ticonderoga plot in the show was so condensed down from the books that it was literally just a skeleton crew there. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, the Jamie and Claire thing was my real one sticking point for this episode. I did like the Battle of Singapore reference, even though I felt like it was a bit of a stretch for Claire to kind of just throw that out there. But I did like the connection that the Battle of Singapore has to all of the storylines that we're going to talk about over the course of the next hour or so. Because... What happened with the Battle of Singapore was that the commanding officer thought that they needed to keep their eye on the sea because he felt like the jungle was so impenetrable that there was no way any threat was going to come from the jungle. And he was very, very wrong. But it's just that he thought he knew what he knew and nobody was going to tell him any differently. And so when the Japanese attacked, it was completely unexpected. I feel like... Every storyline in this episode has a very unexpected element to it in one form or another, whether it's the serial killers on the road with William and the Hunters, whether it's the ley line screen that's in the tunnels for Bree, whether it's Ian meeting his son he didn't know he had, like there's an unexpected surprise for everyone in this episode. Singapore was an apropos choice for title, even though I will say it threw me and I think every other person in the fandom for a loop when they released that title. And we were like, I don't know what Singapore means. Google, 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 Wikipedia, research, go down a rabbit hole. And, you know, I don't think I heard one person with the correct theory, myself included. There were some people that kind of got close to the mark, but not quite. I think the unexpected situations was brought up, but not in direct relation to the Battle of Singapore. I know that the powers that be and all the EPs and everything, they really like to keep people on their toes. They like to keep the book readers guessing. And so they were probably just like, Mwahaha, whatever. <laughs> they saw the social media implosion after they released these episode titles. So yeah, I did kind of end up really liking this title. There were some that I liked more than others for this season, but this ended up being a very all-encompassing one, I felt like. So the last element for Jamie and Claire's story that I feel like I absolutely have to discuss, because why not, is the blossoming relationship between Denny and Claire. This is probably one of my favorite relationships from the book, and it does not disappoint in the show either. It's one of those things where you get this juxtaposition of Stacktoe versus Denny at the end, or towards the end of this episode, and 
you're kind of just have whiplash a little bit. And, you know, we know Denny. We've seen him in a couple episodes now, and we know he's an all right guy. (laughs) I'll never forget my mom the first time we watched an episode with him. She turned to me and she's like, I think I'm going to like him. (laughs) But I mean, who doesn't like Denny? If we're being honest, he's so great. And it's really good for Claire to have a positive influence, like somebody that believes in her abilities other than Jamie. That's what she had in Roger and Bree. They understood her. And when they left, she kind of lost that reassurance that she needed in somebody having faith in her medical skill besides herself. And I think Denny provides that for her, but also he's just so curious. I mean, he knows from the comment about the popliteal aneurysm that Claire knows what she's talking about. I think that impressed him because Stacto probably had no freaking clue what a popliteal aneurysm was. When Denny sees that Claire knows what she's talking about, knows the prognosis, and knows that his diagnosis is probably correct and is able to break that to Walter, that really seals the deal for him. He knows, oh, we're going to be fast friends. The Quaker element to him means that there's no hubris there. He's very much humble and doesn't judge people based on their gender, their ethnicity, their title in the world. That makes the Hunters fast friends with the Fraser clan because we've got all kinds of people that are exceeding expectations or not meeting the social norm of the day and We need people around them that can accept them for them. And it's really good to see Denny with his little Lord John Gray moment where he was like, perhaps, Lieutenant, since I am the one with the degree in medicine, I should perform the amputation. (laughs) I loved seeing Stacktoe get knocked off his pedestal a little bit. And I'm pretty sure that that was a gratifying experience for every viewer. And it really did remind me of the thank you, Lieutenant Leonard moment that Lord John had in the season three finale. Just a little dressing down for for effect. So the second storyline that I'm going to discuss is William. He has a wake up call this episode. We start out with him and Denny and Rachel on their way to Albany. Then they'll split and go to their respective places. But... They're having this conversation on the road about the pacifist belief of the Quakers. William just cannot wrap his head around it. I mean, he's been raised in a family where it's the norm to go into the army. His uncle has his own regiment. Lord John was a career soldier. So he doesn't comprehend how anyone can be a pacifist, can consciously abstain from violence in any form, even if that form is self-defense. It really starts out with this back and forth between Denny, Rachel, and William, and it serves a couple of purposes, this conversation. The first being that we see all three of them, their natural disposition for intelligent debate. They love to argue back and forth with people in an intelligent and polite manner, of course, but they like to debate. And I think that that's one thing that really lends itself well to this relationship that William has with Denny and Rachel. The second reason that this is a very vital conversation for them to have is that it 
sheds a little bit more light on the Quaker belief system, what they are and aren't willing to do, and how they can justify those beliefs in the face of God and other people, primarily because they don't have to justify it to other people, they just have to justify it to God. And then, of course, the big reason is that it shows where William stands on his own beliefs, that he fully believes in committing violence if it is the correct measure, if you're dealing with murderers, thieves, any non-upstanding citizen basically deserves his just desserts. I thought it was very appropriate that when William asks the Hunter siblings, so if somebody was attacking your sister or your brother, you would just stand by and do nothing? And Rachel says, we rely on God's judgment alone. And then William kind of just raises his eyebrows and says, or the willingness of others to commit violence for you. And this has been my prevailing thought since I first read The Hunters, since they first came onto the scene for me five plus years ago. They live in an inherently dangerous time, and they're bloody lucky that they have men around them that are willing to commit these violent acts to keep people safe. They've got Ian and Jamie and William, you know, all of these people that are willing to commit violence on their behalf. And I think Denny and Rachel begin to have an appreciation for that after the events of what happens in the cabin when they're literally almost murdered and would have been murdered if William had not killed that guy and then slugged that woman and knocked her out cold. I think that this was a really important piece to the puzzle for William in particular. I would say that the hunters are kind of static characters in that way. They're very steadfast in their beliefs and nobody is going to change how they feel about their beliefs, which is great. I mean, if you are sound in your belief system and you have a great relationship with God, more power to you. But William is at a much more vulnerable place. He's a young man who hasn't really seen much of the world and is still trying to frame this picture of life in his head and kind of get a firm footing on how things actually work in the world. He's got his head up in the clouds a little bit. He's got this grandiose view of of war and violence and life itself. And that's just really not a good place to be in the middle of a revolution. He starts out this episode having never killed a man, but also being of the belief that some people are just better off dead, like murderers and the whole lot. And I don't think that that belief changes at all over the course of this episode, despite the devastation and everything that he experiences after having killed this man. I don't think that he actually feels any differently regarding violence to keep people safe. What I think has changed about him is that he now recognizes the weight of action. If you take a life, that takes a toll on you. And if it doesn't, there's something wrong with you, if I'm being honest. William comes out of this experience on the road a little more hardened, with his eyes a little bit more opened. Granted, he's still pretty naive in a lot of aspects. He still hasn't seen battle. He still doesn't really know what war is like. But he's starting to find out that all of these things, all of these ideas that he's had in his head 
all his life that have been told to him by his elders, he's never put paid to that at all. And now he's having to find out the cost of those beliefs. Like I said, it's not that he regrets it. It's just that he kind of understands what it means a little bit more. Rachel, on the other hand, I think realizes the cost of her not being supportive of violence. I mean, she was terrified when that woman tried to kill her, tried to kill Denny, and she was very grateful to William for saving their lives. The relationship between William and Rachel, though, I think is one of the things that you really start to appreciate in this episode a little bit because they have such a wonderful understanding between the two. They're great friends. Don't get me wrong. I think they'd love to be more. I definitely know that William would like it to be more, but sometimes things just don't work out that way. And regardless of what happens between them or doesn't happen between them, they still have a really good friendship. We see that in a couple of scenes over the course of this episode. I mean, don't get me wrong. There are tons of flirty moments, which I absolutely adore. I love seeing William and Rachel kind of with their back and forth and her batting her eyelashes, not literally, but metaphorically, and him with his charming little smile and his witty comments. I love seeing them be young because they really are young. So when Rachel walks out after the disgusting stew... (laughs) William goes and comforts her, and she actually ends up humbling him a little bit. You know, whenever she has time to process, and she says, I suppose we should be grateful that they offered us anything given their humble circumstances. And William, you know, is like, yeah, you're probably right. But he is also there for her and kind of lending a hand and that relationship is forming he's joking around with her about and if they invite us to stay for breakfast we'll answer with a resounding no likewise at the end of their story about halfway through the episode after william kills mr johnson she comes out and offers him comfort she knows that he's not in a good place that he's really struggling with what happened he's not making eye contact with her she knows something's wrong and she's like what is it And he is finally forced to admit that he'd never killed anyone before. He brings up a point that when he signed up for the army, he knew he was going to have to kill people, but he figured that it was going to be in battle and he feels like he would have known how to feel about that. It would have been different and more honorable. And Rachel looks at him and says, no, it wouldn't. And you wouldn't know how to feel about it either. So... Whenever he says, you must thank me a disgrace, and she says, I know thee well enough to know that is untrue. I loved that. Like, and I think that is something that William is going to hold on to for a long time is those words that I know thee well enough to know that that is untrue. Because he's going to go through a lot of crap over the course of this season, and he's going to need the strength of his friends to help him get through it. And Rachel is definitely one of those people that I feel like he puts his faith and trust in. And even though he's kind of sweet on her, they have a good foundation as well. So I love the relationship between Rachel and William. Ian also has a really interesting story this episode. And it kind of takes an unexpected turn for show watchers. You know, we addressed in season six what happened between Ian and Emily to cause their split, to cause him to go back to the ridge. They lost a child in stillbirth, and then Emily miscarried an additional child. 
and it just became too much of an emotional toll, and Ian was told to leave by Emily's grandmother. The whole Mohawk belief system behind conceiving a child is that in order to conceive, a man's spirit must overcome a woman's. And so all of this time, Ian has thought, what is wrong with me? Because he knows that Kahiloten and Emily have a son. And he's like, if they were able to conceive, obviously the problem's not with Emily. So what is wrong with me? When he gets the assignment from his commanding officer to go to Shadow Lake to talk to Tyon Denega about siding with the Americans, he's very hesitant and he says, I'd really prefer it if you found somebody else. I have personal reasons for not wanting to go there. And I love that his commanding officer looks at him and says, war has no room for personal reasons. (laughs) Because it's so true. And like, you just kind of have to pull up your big boy pants and go do it, Ian. But before he does, I think he really needs some closure, like needs to know what he's walking into and how he's supposed to feel about this situation because he's been very unable to process the loss of his daughter, the loss of his marriage, the loss of the woman that he loves. And he really needs to put his ducks in a row and get things straight. And we all know that Claire is the one to talk to if you need to put your ducks in a row. So Ian goes and finds Claire And they have this really touching conversation about children. Ian knows from talking to Jamie that he and Claire lost faith. He also knows Claire has a lot of futuristic medical knowledge that maybe could give him answers. So not only does she have more scientific knowledge, but she also has an empathy towards Ian that goes way beyond what the normal person would feel because she's been there. Actually, I think that maybe Claire had it a tad easier than Ian because she at least had the benefit of knowing that there was nothing that she could have done, you know, that like it was a scientific thing. It was a medical thing. It wasn't her that caused this. And granted, that was a knowing that came much later on. She did very much have a lot of self-blame there at the beginning. But like I said, she knows where Ian's at right now. And I think she's probably best placed besides Jamie to give him advice and also to tell him that, look, this wasn't your fault. As she says, this has nothing to do with your spirit and everything to do with science. So we address a lot of important things in this conversation between Claire and Ian because Ian wants to know what would have caused Ishabel's death. Without having actually seen the child or seen Emily, there's no real way for Claire to know what caused it. But we find out that Ishabel wasn't deformed in any way when she was born. So it could have been a genetic birth defect of some sort, but it could have not been. It could have been a spontaneous thing. And that's important for Ian to know because He is in the place right now where if he can't conceive children, he would never marry another woman because he doesn't want to be the reason that that woman can't have children. So when Claire says that there's every reason to believe that Ian won't have any issues conceiving a child with another woman, that is music to his ears. And I think it gives him a little bit of hope a little bit of forward direction for him, but also gives him the grace he needs to forgive himself and also to want Emily to be happy. And so when he goes to Shadow Lake, 
Yeah, that's a big moment for him in meeting his son, but it would have been a big moment whether he met Swiftest of Lizards or not, because it's about him seeing Emily again, knowing that she's happy. And once he knows that she's happy, that she has a family and that she's in a good place, I feel like that takes a little bit of the burden off of himself. Because yes, he does feel the pain of losing a child, but also he doesn't have to feel as much guilt for hindering this life that Emily could have led. She's perfectly happy where she's at. So now I think a little bit of that guilt can come off his shoulders and he can allow himself to be happy as well. And then we get the bombshell that Ian has a son. The continuity, the parallel between Jamie and Ian is not lost on me over the course of this series. The difference being that Jamie's son was conceived out of wedlock. Ian's son, he just didn't know existed. But they both have sons that they aren't really in their lives that are being raised by different men. So you could look at Swiftest of Lizards as a parallel for Brianna with Jamie or with William with Jamie. But nevertheless, he exists. And whatever sliver of reservations was left for Ian, whenever he sees that little boy who, I'm sorry, was perfectly cast and looks like a perfect mix of the woman who plays Emily and John Bell. (laughs) He's so cute. So cute. And if Kahiloten looks at that little boy and thinks, yeah, he's totally my son, he's kidding himself. Like, he has to know that he is Ian's son. He just has to. <laughs> There's no way that a full Native American child could have blondish brown hair. It just, it, it's not a thing. So I would hope that Kahiloten knows. And with how good of a friend he is to Ian, I would think that he probably does know. I think the best thing that could come out of that situation was when the little boy tells Ian, my grandmother says, I was born from your spirit. That tells Ian, I am good enough. I was able to do everything I was put on this earth to do. This is my son. And Emily allowing him to give him an Anglican name for when he walks in that world. It is a bit of a difference from the books because Ian gives his son the name Swiftest of Lizards in the books, whereas he gives him an Anglicized name in the show. But I feel like either way, it totally works. I loved the name Ian James pays homage to his father and his uncle as well as himself. And I just thought it was so perfect. I was pleasantly surprised by Ian's story in this episode, honestly. I wasn't sure if we were going to get Swiftest of Lizards just because I knew that this season was going to be so compact. But I was so happy that we did because this is one of my favorite storylines from the books. Seeing Ian be complete in that way really just made my heart happy. And I think that the closure that Ian gets at Shadow Lake allows him to return feeling a little bit lighter and allows him to pursue this budding relationship that he has with Rachel. They're very into each other. You can tell they're literally making eyes at each other and flirting with each other in a very similar way to the way that Rachel and William flirt. Again, we've got this love triangle that I'm totally a fan of going on, but there's a very very good chemistry between John Bell and Izzy Meikle Small that I just totally was not expecting, but it makes me so happy. 
they're so good with each other. You can just tell that despite the fact that they are polar opposites, I mean, Ian is a very violent man, a mohawk to boot, and Rachel is a Quaker pacifist tiny little woman. And somehow they just work over the course of the series. It's just like, yep, it's Ian and Rachel. And I think that part of it is that Rachel is so outspoken and she does remind Ian a lot of not only his aunt Claire, but his mother as well, both very outspoken and independent women. So I think she fits in well with Ian's expectation of like gender roles. He's just kind of used to that kind of woman in his life. Whereas I'm not really sure, like William thinks that he's attracted to it, but Uh, Is he really? I think it's going to take a little bit more of him getting to know himself before he finds the right woman for him, if that makes sense. Because William is a great deal younger than Ian at this point in the story. But I'm a huge fan of the relationship that's developing between Rachel and Ian. And I think that none of that is possible without the progress and the resolution of grief and guilt that Ian gets in this episode. All of that being said, we've come to probably the biggest chunk of the story for 705, which is Bree and Roger. Matt Roberts made a comment in the official podcast for this episode where he said, every episode has its driving force, its main path forward, and it's usually a different character for every episode. So while all the characters might make an appearance in the episode, there's one person that really grows or moves the plot forward. For this episode, that's Brie. So in order to make that apparent, they actually did a lot of moving stuff around and adding scenes in post to kind of create this bookended whole arc effect for the story. So I think the bulk of this episode for Brie is the first day from hell. And I feel so terrible for Brie. I mean, I can't imagine being a woman in the 1980s trying to do something like a hydroelectric dam inspector. I mean, that is a very male-oriented business in the 1980s. And yes, Brie is perfectly qualified to have that job. Okay. I mean, she's gone to MIT. She's had all kinds of experience. She's way more capable than any of these guys that she's going to be over. And I think that for her, she probably thought that getting the job was going to be one of the hardest parts. And she did that flawlessly. That interview will go down in history as probably one of the best scenes in Outlander. But I don't think that she ever in a million years could have anticipated how difficult it was going to be for her to actually do the job, to be accepted by her co-workers. I think that the man that hired her 100% knew how difficult it was going to be for her. And that was maybe part of the reason that he wasn't willing to hire a woman. And don't get me wrong, I definitely think that that guy had some misogynistic views that were in need of adjustment. But... It doesn't mean that he didn't also have semi-valid reasons either. In this episode, we meet Rob Cameron, a big name casting (laughs) in this episode. There was a lot of talk for a long time about who was going to play Rob Cameron, and he has a big role in this season. So it was important that they got him right, and I really feel like they did. This sleazy slash charming slash obnoxious slash arrogant man. You're never really sure 
how to feel about him. Like one minute you're irritated, the other you're empathetic, and then the other you're just flabbergasted. It was very important to find an actor that could play all of that. And I felt like they did a really good job in who they chose. He's handsome and he knows it. He's that kind of guy. I think he has preconceived notions of what women can and can't do. And when you feed all of that with testosterone and mischief, you kind of get this situation that is not at all okay. And when they lock her in those tunnels, if I were Brie, I would have been pissed too. The fact that she kept going speaks to her character a lot because I probably would have curled into the fetal position and waited for somebody to come find me. But she lights a match, finds the switch for the lights, and continues on. Because what else are you going to do? I think that's one thing that being in the 18th century taught her is that you have to persevere no matter what. Because if you stop, nobody's going to come save you. And I definitely think she knew that this is one of those situations where she had to get shit figured out because she was going to have to save herself. Doing her homework, looking at the tunnel schematics saved her ass. Like, can't even express how much that saved her. When she's going through the tunnels, there are a couple of things that really struck me. So the dam location is actually a practical filming location. Everything there, the actual dam, all the tunnels, the turbine room, everything was practical. I think that that lent itself very well to the cinematography of this episode. There were a couple of shots while she's finding her way through all of these rooms and tunnels that really just knocked my socks off. So one in particular that I liked was when they show her at the bottom of the screen and then it's like a wide shot and you pan up all the way to the top of the dam. I'm not even sure what it is that we're looking at, but you can just tell it is so high up that it's kind of crazy and very easy, I think, to get claustrophobic or like have a fear of being buried alive. Like that's not a good thing. But it was a beautiful shot. Like she looked so tiny in it. And then it's paired quickly after with probably my favorite shot of the episode, which is Brie walking into this hexagonal shaped tunnel and it's lit by all of these little Edison bulb type lights. The shot for some reason is just so gratifying to look at. Maybe because it's so symmetrical and the colors are really rich. It's kind of vibrant. It's got the lighting, but then it's got like the shadows as well. So the contrast is really unique, I feel like. But as she makes her way through the tunnels, we come to probably one of the biggest mysteries of this episode, which is that shimmery, glowing, invisible-ish, like you can walk through it barrier. And I think what tells you more than anything what the heck that is, is the accompanying sound of kind of like white static noise and this buzzing, creaking noise. It's not quite on par with the standing stones and the buzzing hive and the creaking rocks and all of that, but it's a very similar vibe. And that tells you right away that you're dealing with something in relation to standing stones in some way. And we will work on finding out what exactly this thing is over the course of the next couple of episodes. But this episode was really the beginning of starting to understand 
what Brie and Roger will eventually refer to as a practical guide for time travelers. We really start to lean into the mythology and the sci-fi element of this show, of this book series, a little bit more at this point in the story than we have in the past. We got this big mystery pointed at us, and we also have the Nuklevi still lurking about. Rogers found trash out by the Ducat. Mandy saw a man out the window, which Roger didn't see when he went out to check, but we also get the view from the woods, like this person, whoever it is, is looking at Roger. He's been very much watching the McKenzie family, and we don't have answers for who that is either at this point in the show. So it left a lot of dangling threads to continue on over the course of the next several episodes, But in the best way, like, I don't think it was very much of a cliffhanger. It was just kind of unanswered questions, if that makes sense. Like, you know that you're going to get answers eventually, and it's probably going to blow your mind when you do. We got a lot of closure this week on Brie and Roger as a couple. Like, I've said over and over again over the course of these season seven episodes that I'm really digging the Brie and Roger relationship over the course of this season because they just feel so right, so in sync with each other and on firmer footing than I think they ever have been. They're definitely on the same page with how they're raising their children, with their marriage. There was a lot of tension between Brie and Roger when Roger wasn't as supportive with Brie getting this job. She expected that of him. I get why he wasn't necessarily supportive. It's not that he doesn't love her. It's not that he's not proud of her. He just wanted to be the breadwinner because that was the societal expectation of the day. I think Brie is one of those people, words of affirmation is one of her love languages. She needs to be told, I'm proud of you, that I love you. Roger realized that. And the gift of the pin, it seems so simple. And yet it's totally something that Brianna would love because she's an artist first off. And she enjoys the simple things in life, like just the gift of a a beautiful little pin makes her day. And, you know, on a day that was absolutely so shitty, this little thoughtful gift that he could give her and then give those words of affirmation of saying, I got it for you so you can take it to work and think about how proud I am of you every day. And I'm sorry that I didn't make that clear sooner. That apology means a lot. It's that wonderful evolution of these characters and their communication styles and learning to grow around one another. It's absolutely gorgeous. I loved that moment. Brie still has a lot to figure out as far as her job and how she's going to move forward with that. I think she's feeling a little bit better about herself now that she knows she has Roger in her corner, but she's still got to work at it. And they actually added the scene where she is sitting in the trailer just thinking. She's mulling things over whatever, and then she kind of makes the decision that she's going to go and do something about this behavior. Like, it's unacceptable, and she's not going to sit here and take it. They added that because they felt like they needed that moment of decision from Brie to make this a very final, I'm putting my foot down moment for her, which I agree with. And I was honestly surprised that that scene wasn't there from the very beginning. It just seemed so much that it fit there. So I'm glad that they thought to add it in. But the scene in the bar following that up 
really allows us to see Brie shine a little bit. I feel like we haven't really seen Brie the past couple of episodes other than her standing up to the man that's going to hire her. But then she kind of lost some of her steam after she got the job. It's almost like she kind of thought the fight was over in a lot of ways. And she kind of had to pick herself back up after she got knocked down on her first day of work and go figure it out. Going to the bar, sitting down with all the men and just making a comment like, so who do I have to lock in a tunnel to get a drink around here? Really makes it clear that she's not taking bullshit from anybody. And we're going to get things ironed out right now because that kind of crap is not going to fly. We'll start off tomorrow with a clean slate. But if you ever try anything like that again, I will have the lot of you fired. And she says it in just such a matter of fact way. And then she says, oh, and don't call me hen. Like, if we're talking about airing our grievances here, let's get it all out in the open so we can just move forward. And Rob Cameron just looks at her and says, fair enough, Gov. And he calls her Gov for the rest of these three more episodes, which she likes being called more than hen, I suppose. I mean, hen is just such a derogatory term, I feel like. It's like calling somebody a chick or a babe in American culture, I guess. It was a much-needed moment. I felt like that put them on firm ground with each other. They know where each other stands. Brianna's the boss, and we're going to listen to her. She does know what she's doing, and it's like Rob even kind of gave her a backhanded compliment in saying that, well, you made it out in record time. Like, good job. (laughs) Yeah, but, like, no denying, we just locked you in a tunnel and left you there, hoping you would eventually find your way out. Good Lord. What is wrong with people, like just people in general. And you know, I honestly think that her boss probably would have been like, well, boys will be boys. And I did warn you. She does threaten to have them fired. But honestly, I don't think that he would have fired them. Because I think that he just would have been like, well, I told you that you were going to run into difficulties whenever you took this job and you said you could handle it. So this is what I meant. And you're going to have to handle it or quit. I literally could see that happening. (laughs) Alrighty, so the final couple of things that I want to touch on in this episode are the letters and the presence of the graveyard in Roger and Bree, particularly Bree's story. As expected, the letters are a wonderful presence to have. They really help to connect Jamie and Claire with Roger and Bree, which was the intended purpose. But it also gives Brianna in particular something to play her emotions off of. I absolutely adored it. Like, I really did figure whenever we were trying to figure out how this season was going to be formatted, that the letters were going to play an integral role in keeping the two timelines connected, which I felt like was vital because if you don't keep the timelines connected, it's very easy to get off pace on one or the other. And one storyline is going to start to carry more weight than another. And that's never good. That's always where the bad stuff starts to happen in shows. So I think so far this season, they've done a really good job. I've honestly really loved the Max storyline so far up until this point. It's actually one of the more interesting. (laughs) And I never thought that I would see a day when I thought that Jamie and Claire's story was going to be less interesting than other characters. But I think we've reached that point. Don't come for me. (laughs) But anyway, the graveyard is probably one of the most important things about this episode. It creates this beautiful bookend between the beginning and the end of the episode. And it wasn't originally formatted this way. The end scene 
of Brianna going and talking to Jamie's Karen was originally much earlier in the episode, but they felt like it made a better arc and complete story for Brianna to start the episode with Brie so uncertain, not wanting to go into the graveyard because she's so terrified that she's going to find Claire and Jamie's graves in there. I can't say that I don't think that's a valid thing because if you've been kind of lying to yourself and thinking that your parents are alive and just kind of somewhere else in the world, the last thing that you want is to have to stare at a physical reminder of the fact that they're dead. So I think the letters have been keeping them alive for her and she's terrified of that vivid physical reality of the fact that they're no longer in the world. It's painful for Brie and seeing the kids just laughing and having a good time and playing hide and seek in the graveyard really is a juxtaposition that she's just trying to figure out in her head, but it's not really something that she can put together right now. And something very interesting that's mentioned in this initial scene is that Jemmy says him and Mandy go there because Mandy wanted to talk to Granda. Brie initially is like, oh, did you find his his grave? Like, is he buried here? And Jem says, well, he's here, isn't he? Like, not necessarily that his grave is here, but like his spirit is here, right? It's a very interesting blip of a mention because Jemmy and Mandy have such unique gifts. It's one of those things where it starts to tie all of these supernatural elements together. We have the ley line thing that they found. We have this Nuklavid. And then we've got Jamie and Claire's spirits, supposedly, that potentially Mandy and Jimmy can sense. Supposedly, at one point, probably in the intervening time when Jamie knew that the kids would be going back, he had a conversation with Jimmy about, if you ever go to the graveyard at Lollybrock, build me a cairn and you can find me there. I'll always be there for you. This is the result of that conversation. I think for Brie, it's a bit disturbing because she's thinking about the kids talking to her parents' spiritual forms when she's been relying on these very physical letters to keep her connected to her parents. It was quite the closed loop whenever at the end of this episode, she gathers up the courage to go into the graveyard and talk to Jamie's Cairn. And I think part of that is that she feels like she's finally done something worth being proud of, like she's doing right by her parents. And she wants to share that with Jamie. But also, I think she's really starting to find her footing in the 20th century and starting to come to terms with the situation as it is. That was really what this scene was. And that creative moment at the end where she keeps talking even through the initial credits when the screen is black. I absolutely loved that creativity. It's not something we've ever seen with this show before, but it was very touching. It was just like you were almost listening into somebody doing a graveside visit and almost felt like too private to watch in, in a way. And I really liked it. I felt like we really felt Brie connecting with Jamie in that moment. So... All right, that wraps up my thoughts on 705 Singapore. Performance of the episode goes to Sophie Skelton because she absolutely knocked my socks off this episode. I felt like whether she was playing angry or terrified or really sad, she just played the whole gamut so well. One particular moment that really struck me was when Roger came into the study when she was debating whether to read the letter and she's just like bawling her eyes out. Again, that bond between Roger and Brie 
man, hits me in the feels. But Sophie in particular, I felt like had a really good journey for Brianna this episode, and she brought it to life in a really amazing way. So performance of the episode goes to Sophie. And then quote of the episode was a really cute line from Rachel where her and Denny are talking and he said, you know, the Lord spoke to me and told me that I should join the army as a surgeon, basically, but you don't have to follow me. And Rachel looks at him and says, the Lord spoke to me as well. He said, keep thy fat headed brother from dying. (laughs) And I felt like that was such a great moment for our characters of just seeing this little relationship that this brother and sister have, because it's not a common type of relationship that we get in Outlander, the brother-sister bond. And seeing it with Denny and Rachel is really gratifying in a way. They really nail it, Joey and Izzy do. So, alrighty. Well, as always, I like to open it up to see what you guys had to say about this episode. So without further ado, let's get into listener comments. Laura Hillman Turner says, I was surprised and pleased that they brought Ian's visit to Emily's village and the introduction of Swiftest of Lizards forward into the story from Bees. We are lucky they have introduced him early and hopefully that means we'll get more of him moving forward. This relationship is important to Ian's character arc. Yeah, I, like I said, was definitely surprised by the fact that they included it in the story. So thoroughly impressed and happy that they did though and I thought it was very well done I thought the little boy was very well cast so 10 out of 10 on that plot choice for sure I agree Jen O'Neill says poor Brie cannot bear to think of her parents as being gone Roger is so sweet in the letter scene loved the scene in the kitchen before Brie goes to work Rob Cameron is smarmy. This is exactly what I thought of him when I read the book. So great job, Chris Fulton. Fermoy was a bit over the top. That teal color is showing up everywhere this season. Were the rats really necessary? I have to fast forward that part. It seems like the show wants to play up the triangle aspect of Rachel, William, and Ian. The conversation with Claire and Ian was touching. I liked the way Claire explains it to Ian. It was a bit more personal than explaining the blood and RH factors. They're zooming through the story, and this episode was a bit disjointed to me. The fight with the Johnsons is vital to the development of William's character, as is the conversation with Rachel after. Charles Vandervart continues to impress me as the season and goes on. Joey and Izzy do such a great job bringing the siblings' relationship to the screen. I was so happy yet sad for Ian when he met Totus. Yeah, Chris Fulton is really amazing as Rob. I think he was a fantastic choice for sure. And yes, okay, let's talk about Fermoy for a minute because I think that that is a French actor, if I'm being honest, but for some reason that accent sounds so fake for me. And I don't know why. I don't know whether it's just because English isn't his first language or what, but yeah, the voice was getting on my nerves by the end of the episode for sure. And yeah, I agree. Claire's explanation to Ian was a bit more heartfelt and touching in the show than it was in the books because it got really scientific-y. And if you didn't have basic knowledge of biology, the emotion could easily get lost in the confusion of you trying to understand what Claire is saying. So yeah, I liked the adaptive choice of making it a much more simple, there could be a million reasons, but you know, I don't think you really want to hear any of those. Okay, 
Last comment is from Joan Cohen. She says, I really love the growth in Roger and Bree's relationship this season. It's so much more mature and supportive. Even when there's some conflict between them, they listen to each other and find a way to resolve the issue the way Jamie and Claire do. Roger has a high emotional IQ. He understands what Brie needs and boosts her self-confidence by reminding her of the parallel between Claire's med school experience and her own job. I thought she handled the hazing incident with the boys like a boss. Rob Cameron is one slimy dude, though. I really enjoyed the Hunters and William together. Rachel is very spirited and forthright, and it's easy to see why both William and Ian are attracted to her. She's also wise beyond her years when she talks to William about how he feels about killing. It's so interesting to see his character's growth in a short period of time with all these experiences having an impact on him. I'm really glad the attraction between Ian and Rachel is more obvious in the show, especially given later developments. I felt it was almost too subtle in the books and that Rachel was as blindsided as I was. As much as I loved Ian naming Swiftest of Lizards in the book and the ambiguity of his parentage, I get why the show needed to streamline that part of the story. I'm not sure I like the English name Ian gave him, though. There's too many Ians already. Fort Ticonderoga felt a little flat to me. I understand that Jamie was trying not to contradict Fermoy, but he usually doesn't give up so easily when he knows he's in the right. I did love the image of the mountain goats in the title card, given Fermoy's comment. It also made me think of British hauling the artillery up the cliffs during the Battle of the Plains of Abraham. Yeah, that's a good point. I didn't even think about the cannon being hauled up the cliff during the uh, Battle of Quebec. I want to talk about Roger's emotional IQ. You're right. He really does read very well into what Brianna requires from him. He was able to point out to her that your mother trod this path first, and if she can do it, you can do it. I really did like that parallel. But yeah, William. William does have a remarkably accelerated process for his emotional and personal growth in the show, but I almost feel like you can see it better in the show with all of these instances highlighted episode by episode versus it's kind of spread out in the books amongst some of this somewhat superfluous material. And that's one of my drawbacks of reading the books is I feel like there's a lot in there that you don't necessarily need. And it does kind of make things hard to understand or remember unless you are doing an intensive book study on it and like taking notes or you read them a million times, which a lot of people in the fandom do. And so those instances are easier to pick out. But yeah, definitely in the show, you can see like beat by beat each of these things impacting William's character and changing him for the better as he goes along. And same with Ian and Rachel. I think, yes, their bond slash chemistry is way more obvious in the show. And I'm a big fan of that as well, because in the books, here I was rooting for Rachel and William, and then I get sideswiped by the Ian and Rachel thing that's going on. (laughs) And, you know, all of a sudden they're declaring their love for each other or whatever. And I'm just like, wait, what? What happened here? So, yes, I think that everything is going as well as can be expected at this point in season seven. And there aren't a lot of major complaints that I have. So I agree with you, Joan. A lot of good choices. A couple fell flat. But overall, I think it was a decent episode. Alrighty, well, that wraps up this episode of The Sassnack Files. Make sure to join me next week for my analysis of 706, Where the Waters Meet. And until then, you guys stay safe out there, and I will chat at you later. Bye.